are listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. Would you stand now for the reading of God's Word? Today's scripture passage comes from 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, and then chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. Excuse me. 4 and 5. This is on page 1,210 in the Black Bibles in front of you. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Chapter 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is the word of the Lord. Well, what did you win? I always regretted knowing that that question was going to be coming from my grandfather. And the reason is that my grandfather's a very humble but generous guy. When I was a teenager, he would slip me a $5 bill so I could go to the video arcade and play Ms. Pac-Man, you know, until my eyes were burning. And he always wanted to know at the end, what did you win? And it was kind of hard to explain to, you know, a guy in his 70s who'd grown up on a farm in Oklahoma that, well, I got my initials at the top of the screen for the day's high score. Or, you know, maybe a few years later, I won a bunch of tickets and I traded them in for this little plastic trinket. It was kind of hard to answer the question, and I didn't want to have to answer it because I didn't really have a good response for it. There's, there's a reason that uh, when you go into places like, I'm going to switch to this. We'll try this instead. Hey, that works better. Uh, you go into a video arcade and you get excited about getting the high score, winning a prize, or you know, getting a, a, a big roll of tickets so I can take home some trinket. And as I was thinking about that in line of this passage, uh, something came to me. There's a reason that there are no windows in video arcades, or so I've heard, in casinos. Uh, They don't want you to notice or remember that there's an actual outside world. They want you to stay inside and keep dropping dollar bills and trying to win prizes. Because if you look around and you're reminded that there's something bigger and maybe more real out there, it might make you question, why have I been spending my time and my money here? And what they want you to do is to stay 
and keep dropping quarters or dollar bills in the machines and not wonder whether the game that you're playing really matters. See, they want you to stay long enough to drop dollar bills and maybe leave with, uh, you know, some thrill of excitement and uh, a little plastic token and not think about all that uh, until, you know, the thrill wears off. You get home and your wallet's empty and the toy falls apart within a couple of days or you lose it in the couch cushions or whatever. What they want you to remember is the adrenaline rush and the sugar and the bright lights and the thrill of the chase that'll bring you back again. You're not supposed to ask if any of it really is worthwhile. It's really kind of a parable or a picture of life in this world. And it illustrates, I think, what John is talking about when he mentions overcoming the world. And what we're going to see in that passage as we heard read today is that we don't overcome by winning the game. We overcome by playing a different game entirely. We don't overcome by winning the game the way it's set up. We overcome by playing a different game entirely. We're finishing up this Sunday this short series that we've had in John's first letter uh, called Children of Light and Love. Coming out of Easter, we've been exploring what does it mean to know Jesus, to find life in him, and to live as his children. And John is here talking about this idea of overcoming, overcoming the world, overcoming the evil one. And it maybe makes us think back to something Jesus said back in John's gospel as he's preparing as he knows, to go and offer his life up for a sacrifice and then return to the Father, he tells his followers that we're also going to suffer in this world. But he says, take heart. Why? Because I have overcome the world. Now, what struck me thinking about that is that Jesus says that before he goes to the cross, before he comes out of the empty tomb, before he ascends back to the Father, he says that he has already won a victory before any of those things that we think are about what it means that Jesus has won. And that's important for us because the Bible pictures us as living in a sinful world that tempts us and battles against God's will and God's ways and God's work in us. And John encourages us that as his children, we can have victory and we can overcome as we walk with Jesus. We don't overcome by winning the game. We overcome by playing a different game entirely. I don't know if you heard that language that John used about overcoming the world, overcoming the evil one. I don't think there's a big distinction that we're meant to draw there. The, the concepts overlap. When he talks about overcoming the world, we just want to make sure we know what he's saying and what he's not saying. John is not talking about the created order that often reflects a lot of God's goodness and beauty. He's not talking about humankind, people who are made in his image. John is talking about the ways that we direct our lives and our energy and our priorities in opposition to God's will and to God's rule and all the brokenness and all the suffering and all the violence that comes as a result of that. The world in that sense reflects 
Satan's rebellion against God and his rule and our part in it and our suffering along with that. But God loves the world and sent his son not to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. And that means we end up, though, seeing the world for what it really is when we come to know and walk with Jesus. We overcome the world because we are not lured by its promises of wealth or success or power or control or status. That's what John is getting at in chapter 2 and verses 15 to 17. I don't know if you heard that. Let's look there if you have your Bible with you. Do not love the world or the things in this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him because all that is in the world, this especially, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from this world. And this world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. That's why John can say, in a similar way as we heard in chapter 5, that everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So do, do you see what John is getting at here? That The faith that overcomes the world is a shorthand for believing that Jesus is the unique Son of God that has come to bring life to us and make it possible for us as prodigal sons and daughters to be reconciled back to the Father and to find life in the one true Son of God who took on flesh and lived the life we ought to live to rescue us through his cross and resurrection, to bring us into life and to rescue us from our self-created evil and brokenness. To put faith in Jesus and to look to him for life is to overcome the world just as Jesus has. Not by conquering, not by exerting power, not by dominating, but by living to please the Father in humility and self-giving love. It's seeing through this world's shadows and lies and refusing to play by its rules. As we overcome, not by winning the game, but by playing a different game entirely. John spells that out for us in the middle of chapter 2, where we want to spend some time looking at verses 12 through 14. He, he writes here to little children or dear children and fathers and young men. And I don't think he's talking specifically about age categories in the church, but I think stages of spiritual development. The, the dear children that he references would be all believers in general, but I think in this context, he's, he's writing again in this kind of poetic style about people who are new to faith in Jesus. 
And then the young men are the people in the prime of life, those who are engaged in trying to walk with Jesus and, and follow him in the middle of spiritual struggle. And, uh, and those fathers are the ones who have grown in close communion with God over a period of years and, and have a, a deep communion with him, stability of their Christian faith and experience. These believers are living in Jesus' victory that has overcome the world. They're enjoying his forgiveness and the knowledge of God and experiencing the power to overcome this world that we live in that God promised. And so John is saying, I want you to see and remember these things so that you overcome. And what are those things? Well, look in verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Christians overcome this world because we know that we are completely and permanently and freely forgiven. We have a position in Christ that this world cannot match. You're not forgiven, you see, John is saying, on account of your name or your efforts or your moral goodness or your emotional, you know, response to the gospel or the quality of your repentance or some general belief that God is loving and kind. A Christian says, I am forgiven for his name's sake. Now, who is that? Well, it's Jesus, of course, yes, it's referring to Jesus and everything that he has done. You know, as a child of God, that you are forgiven and reconciled and you are delighted in by the Father because of what Jesus has done. He lived the life that I should have lived and he died the life that I should have died. And in the beginning of chapter 2, John tells us, He's writing these things so that we would not sin, but if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, who is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Do you see what John's getting at here? If we look at ourselves, I am always going to be filled with worry and doubt and anxiety. Have I performed well enough? Have I obeyed enough? Have I been good enough? Have I done good enough? I'll always have to try and prove myself and, and look for something to make me worthy. And I try to find ways to feel good about myself, often because of my moral superiority to those other people. Now, we're Christians and we're not supposed to put it that way, so what we do instead is just knock other people down, right? I know I'm not perfect, but I know I'm doing a better job than those people. I mean, I know I'm not sinless in my marriage, but I mean, really, I'm carrying most of the weight here. I know that I don't know everything, Jesus, but I certainly know better than those people. And I'm thankful that I have my doctrine right, and I know all the right things to believe. We don't put it that way. I mean, not outwardly, but that's the conversation that goes on in our heads, isn't it? And, and it sounds a lot like the Pharisee in Jesus' little parable. I thank you, Lord, that I am not like those other people. I think that's what John is getting at when he talks about the pride of life. 
boasting in what we have or what we do. And that's the way of the world. Belief in my superiority, pride in my accomplishments, think that God is pleased with me because, well, you know, at least I don't do those things. I don't engage in those sins. And, uh, you know, I'm smarter, I'm more loving, I'm more tolerant than those people. John is saying the way we overcome that is knowing that we have a position that is not for your name's sake. It's not on account of what you have done or what you believe or your intelligence or your accomplishment or your moral performance. It's because of Jesus. And to have him, to have faith in him, is to rest in his grace as sufficient and overcome the world. To see through that lust of the flesh, to want to have the pride of life, to have something to boast in of myself. And, and then it, it breaks the power not just of boasting and comparing, but of doubting. Am I good enough? Am I smart enough? Have I done enough? Have I repented enough? Have I trusted enough? Have I believed enough? Do you understand the power of the name of Jesus that John is pointing us towards here? Because when you do, you won't be discouraged when you fall down. And, and when you're doing well, you won't be tempted to kick other people who, who don't seem to be doing as well as you. If you were in Christ, you were saved, you are made alive, you are forgiven because of his name. You have a position in Christ that nothing can match. And then at the end of verse 14, I write to you young men because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. That's the second thing. John is saying you have a power in Christ that the world cannot match. The Bible, of course, is the written word of God. But in this written word of God, often uh, there are places where the Bible talks about the word of God more broadly to mean the will and the ways and the understanding of God and the life of God and then connects that to the Holy Spirit's work in us. The, the Spirit of God is the Spirit of truth, and he comes to live in our lives to bring the Word of God to reality as we walk with him. So, for example, Peter says, you have been born again by an imperishable seed, the Word of God, and you are partakers in the divine nature. That's saying that God's life, his truth, is planted in you and the Holy Spirit who comes to live in you now brings that word to life and gives you power to walk and obey and trust and follow in ways that you could never do on your own. That's what it means to be born again. The Spirit lives in you to bring God's word to life. And that means you are strong, John says. Therefore, it's almost hard for us to even comprehend the unimaginably great power that is at work and living and available inside of us. What potential you have through God's Spirit, to live into what God created you to be, 
to reflect the image of his son. Because Jesus is loving, his spirit is now at work in you to make you love in the ways that Jesus loves. Because Jesus is truthful, the spirit is now at work in you to guide you in his in the Father's word and to help you be honest and trustworthy in what you say. And because God is kind and gentle and patient, the fruit of his Spirit's work in his children is to grow us in kindness and patience and gentleness. Are there things in your life that, like me, you've tried to overcome? Maybe some of them for years you've wrestled and struggled with and maybe you've said or maybe you've thought, just, I cannot do this. I can't change. It's too much. I can't love him. I can't forgive her. Anybody who says that, when we say that, we are devaluing the power, the strength of God's word and God's spirit to actually change us and help us overcome. Christianity is not deciding that I need to do better and I, I, need, you know, I need to get my act together and work harder to be more loving, to be more truthful, to be more forgiving. The Christian life is about saying a new life has come into you to empower you to do what you could not do before on your own. Because it is God who is at work in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. That is good news. You are strong. You can overcome. You don't need to look outside for power. You don't need what the world offers which I think John references here as the lust of the eyes. Because that's saying, oh, you know, I need that. If I had that, if only I had that person, if only I had that power, if only I had that insight, oh, if only I had that publishing deal, if only I had that platform, if only I had the levers of power, man, I could make everything work out great and everything would be right if only I had more strength, if only I had more authority. Now, it calls to mind a, a movie that I don't necessarily recommend watching, but it's you know, one of those things that I saw and it's stuck in my head. Any of you remember Conan the Barbarian from the 80s with Arnold Schwarzenegger? There's this part where the, the warriors are sitting around debating what is best in life. And Conan says, to crush your enemies, to drive them before you to hear the lamentation of the women. <laughs> now, even though I do not look much like a barbarian warrior, there's something in my heart that wants that. There's something in our hearts that wants that. To crush our rivals, to humiliate them, to shut their mouths so that they can no longer argue with us, to ban them, to cancel them, to get rid of them, to drive political enemies from office, to cast them into the outer darkness, to remove everyone from power that we disagree with, to hear the lamentations of those that we finally defeated, because we know the way everything ought to be done. That's why Jesus says his kingdom is not of this world and why he doesn't give his people that kind of power right here and now, because we are not good at handling that. You have a power in Christ that the world cannot match. Do we believe that? That we don't need that kind of worldly power, because Jesus' kingdom doesn't operate in that way. 
and to pick up the same kind of sword that the world uses to try and bring about Jesus' kingdom is exactly what Peter did in the garden. And the temptation that Satan offered Jesus when he took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. Have the kingdom without the cross, Jesus. She says, no, that is not how my kingdom operates. You overcome not by winning the game, but by playing a different game entirely. And you have a power in Christ that the world cannot match. Jesus' kingdom will not come through worldly power, and one day he will return and set everything right. And then third, John says, I write to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. And he says that twice in verse 13 and verse 14. You don't just get a position. You don't just get a power. You get a, you get a person. Oh, don't miss this. You have a person in Christ that the world cannot match. What makes someone a Christian is not that we know a bunch of true things about God, not that we have doctrine all figured out, but that you know him, that you know Jesus. All this life, all this power, all this transformation that we've been talking about in the Christian life comes not just from knowing things intellectually about Jesus, but knowing him. How do you know him? Oh, he wants you to know him. He wants you to know his life. God does not relate to us like electricity relates to a light bulb. He, he relates to us, as the Bible says, like a, a spouse to a beloved or a parent to a child or a friend to a friend. Do you know that God not only forgives you, that God not only loves you, but God likes you? God delights in you. God made you. And he rejoices over you. And that he wants your ultimate best. And, and when that becomes your core identity, when that becomes how you see yourself, I am loved by God. The, the, it breaks the power of I think what John talks about here, the, the lust of the flesh that's grasping for acceptance and security and love and identity in our own ways and from the relationships that we try to control and manage. A well-known and respected pastor, uh, someone that I've known a bit, actually, went to seminary with just a few years apart, recently had to step down from a prominent ministry because of creating a toxic culture in his church. And he publicly admitted, I verbalized insensitive and hurtful criticism of other people's work. I've used social media and the pulpit to quiet dissenting viewpoints. I've manipulated facts to support paths and outcomes that I desire. And many of us are probably wondering right now, who is it? I want to know, is it, is it someone we like or is it someone we oppose? Because that will determine how I respond to that news. That's scary, isn't it? 
What if it doesn't matter what camp or what party or denomination or whatever this pastor is in, but we're just lamenting over the brokenness of the whole situation and we can hear the truth from what he's saying and the truth from other people and not having to stake out a side or a position that, that we're supporting because that's what the world says. Stake out a, a position on something and build your identity around that and rally allies so that you can identify the enemies and know who's in and who's out. And winning is what matters because the cause is so important. And gather your troops around you and that's where you'll find your identity and your community. What if we overcame by not playing by those rules? What if we could disagree but be known for our kindness to people we disagree with? What if we turned the other cheek? What if we went the second mile? What if we prayed for those who persecute us and blessed those who curse us and if our enemy is hungry, what if we fed him, as Paul says? What if we forgave as we have been forgiven? What if we approach the whole idea of taking sides and staking out positions super cautiously because we know that there's a lot of the pride of life and the lust of the flesh wrapped up in that? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, they're all counterfeits of what God really wants to give you, has already given you in Jesus Christ. He's given you unshakable confidence and security in your position and who you are because you are a beloved child of God, not because of anything that you have done. What more do you need to rest in? He's given you power by his spirit to, to help us to do everything good that he has called us to do. You are strong. You can walk now in obedience to God that brings true life. You don't need to look to the world for life or power because you have it. And he's given you a relationship with himself through Jesus Christ that answers all of our longings for acceptance and delight and community and identity and security and permanence. That is what you were made for. And when you see that you already have it and God is giving it to you freely in Jesus, you see the world's promises and priorities are empty shadows that are passing away. You overcome, not by winning the game, but by playing a different game entirely. Tim Keller, a uh, well-known pastor many of you have heard of and probably heard the news that he passed away this week. Uh, in one of his books, Counterfeit Gods, he writes this. In the biblical view of things, the main problem of life is sin, and the only solution is God and his grace. The alternative to this view is to identify something besides sin as the main problem with the world and something besides God as the main remedy. This demonizes something that is not completely bad and makes an idol out of something that cannot be the ultimate good. And the Bible rejects all attempts to identify part of the creation as either villain or savior. 
I hardly ever recommend that people go out on social media, but if you were to do it, this would be the time to do it for the purpose of listening to what people who disagreed with Tim Keller in his theology are saying about him as a person in response to his passing. I've never seen anything like this. Here's an example from Amy Bird, a Christian who disagrees with Tim Keller's theology of you know, whether women should be ordained or serve in pastoral ministry. I can't remember what we were even critiquing involving Tim on our podcast, but I remember the email he sent me after. It was so kind. He invited me to have a conversation. What stood out was that he contacted me, the least well-known of the three people even on the podcast, telling me that he was a listener, telling me to keep up the good work, even as he pointed out his way of seeing things in disagreement. No matter where you stand on Tim's theology and work, these stories are a master class for peopling. Our tweets won't be remembered. How we treat people will. And I've got to tell you, I've been blown away this last few days reading story after story after story after story. Yes, talking about Keller's intellect and his creativity and the mind of an apologist and the heart of a pastor, but what consistently stands out is how he respected people, how gracious and humble and kind he was. That's how you overcome the world. Somebody said, I destroy my enemies by making them my friends. I think there's a word of wisdom in that, that John is giving to us. We don't overcome by winning the game, but by playing a different game entire. We don't overcome the world by overpowering it. We overcome the world by undercutting it in a sense, not, not angrily, but, but by taking the power out of it in our own lives, by, by knocking its knees out in a sense. We overcome the world by taking the power from its attractions and temptations in our own hearts and lives. Faith that overcomes the world is not just believing in Jesus so that I go to heaven when I die. It is dying to self now so that I enter heaven now, and to live there eternally from here on forward. To overcome is to see the lies of this world and to refuse to play the game. To overcome is to walk the way of the cross with Jesus. And John says, you know, you know him. He knows you. You are strong. The word abides in you. And you have overcome the power of Jesus' spirit. Praise God. Father, we, uh, we are just so thankful to you for this uh, time we've had in this letter over these last weeks and today and for this reminder in a world that is so full of conflict and hostility and violence and resentment and mistrust and fear and and how it just calls out to us all the time. Oh, Jesus, thank you that you invite us into a better, deeper, bigger, realer life. Help us, Jesus. Help us to draw the curtains back, to see life for what it really is, to see you who, for who you really are and how you have already overcome this world. And how we share in that victory and that power as we walk with you because we're not playing by the same rules. 
Thank you, Jesus. Oh, help us to walk with you in faith and hope and victory and power and confidence. We pray in your name. Amen.